Well, praise God that we get a chance to worship together. It's, a, it's an honor to worship together. We indeed do not take it for granted. We're thankful for whatever God has given us, and he's given us each other, his word, and our voices. We can lift those high, and he is very pleased and worshiped uh, with worship that comes from our heart. So I'll invite you to pray with me. We're going to pray, and then we'll turn to the Lord and his word together. Father, I pray that through your word you would send an outpouring of your Holy Spirit on your people so that your children might be edified by the gospel of grace and that non-Christians who've been thinking about faith for a while, maybe even have been raised in a Christian household, would become Christians today. Thank you that your word is able to do that in partnership with your Holy Spirit. And so we do pray that you would send your spirit to accompany your word, to discern the hearts of men so that Christ would be lifted high. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? Amen. Well, uh, I could remember back to uh, 2009. I was a a sophomore in college, um, and it actually was the first year that I had become a Christian. During the uh, first season that I met the Lord, I also met this man. His name is Mark Fodale. I think I've mentioned to you, uh, him to you before. He made a huge impact on my life. Uh, Mark uh, was a disciple maker. He led a campus ministry on campus. Uh, he discipled men in the gospel and also um, led this fellowship group. And not too long after I met Mark and began meeting with Mark, did he invite me to share my testimony with the Thursday night fellowship group. Every Thursday night, about 100 to 150 students would gather um, to listen to the word preached and to learn about Jesus. And Mark asked me to share my testimony. And impulsively, I said yes, although I had never done that before. And so immediately after I said yes, I thought to myself, oh my gosh, what did I just say yes to? I got really intimidated because of the number of students that were going to be there, but I did it anyways. And I can't believe Mark asked me. I was a new Christian. I didn't know much about the gospel. All I did know is that God loved me and that he had affected and changed my life. And I was given an opportunity to tell a number of people about that. And so there, were, there I was on Thursday night before the 150 students. And I was able to share how God had changed me with his love. And um, it was okay. It went okay. I, I definitely share my testimony different now. Um, But it was so great to offer that group hope from a true living hope living inside of me that God had done through his work and spirit. Um, We have been talking about this idea of testimony for uh, a few weeks now, especially last week. How our faith, if it is true, must be founded in a valid, reasonable, obvious testimony of truth. And how that truth, although it may come with emotion and story, must ultimately and primarily come from and or be found in the scriptures. That's what makes a valid testimony true. That that gospel can be found in the word of God. This morning, we'll be continuing along in our series in 1 John. And what I'd like to do is show you this how the idea of testimony actually originates in God and how God himself has a testimony. 
And his testimony, a.k.a. what he has spoken and wants you and I to know, is this. That in his son Jesus, there is eternal life. This idea will be new for some, and I hope a gospel reminder, a gracious gospel reminder for those who already believe in this. That God has made himself available to sinners, and by grace alone, changes their lives and imparts himself into the human soul so that he or she who once was dead would come to life, true life, eternal life through the word and the son of God only. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open. We're going to be in the book of 1 John chapter 5 this morning. 1 John chapter 5 this morning. If I had the clicker and these work, this would be the time that I would click it, but we don't. I've titled the sermon this morning, God's Testimony of life in Christ. God's testimony of life in Christ. And from this text this morning, I'd like to show you three things. Number one, the three witnesses within his testimony. Number two, the one word that makes valid God's testimony. And number three, eternal life. The three witnesses, the one word, and eternal life. We're going to begin our time by reading the scripture together. I encourage you, because of the lack of screens this morning, to use your Bibles or your cell phones to follow along. First John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12 say this. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God, and right now we're moving to point number one. I'd like to show you the three witnesses. One of the main reasons why I've actually titled this sermon the way I did, the first part being God's testimony, is because um, this idea of testimony in this text from John's writing is, objectively speaking, the most pressing issue on John's mind. In fact, if you look there, what you'll see is how John repeats this word testimony, or at least some form of it, eight times in just seven verses. And as we begin here, what we must also keep in mind is that although we have a new sermon before us this morning, John here is merely continuing on with his writing where we left off from last week in verse 5. And in verse 5, he ended off speaking about Jesus being the Son of God. 
And so actually what he's doing here for us this morning is continuing on testifying to the identity of Christ. If you look there in verse 6, he begins by saying this. This is he, the Son of God, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. It's kind of the point where um, in interpreting this text gets a bit sticky because of the vagueness of the three things that uh, John is actually referencing to. Not so much the Spirit, it's pretty direct. We know who the Spirit is, but more in concern or in reference to the water and the blood. Scholars have debated these two references over the centuries, but if you consider Jesus' life and ministry with me for a second, I think it's actually pretty clear. If you remember back to the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, one of the first things that you might recall is how Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And do you remember what happened after John, his cousin, dunked Christ in the water and rose him out of it? The Gospel of Mark says immediately, as soon as Christ came up from the water, the heavens were torn open, the Spirit descended on Christ like a dove, and from there a voice from heaven spoke and said, You are my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. And so when John references the water here, this is what he's referencing. And from that gospel account of Mark, we have the role and activity of the Spirit. The Spirit descending on Christ and resting on Christ to affirm his divine identity. And so from this text, in correlation with that story, we have two of the three witnesses confirmed. Which leads us to the final witness here in this text, which John references the blood. And to understand John's reference of the blood, we have to remember the context in which John is writing. John is writing during a time where Gnostics or false teachers of his time were circulating, coming out of the church and circling around the church, calling themselves Christians, all at the same time denying the deity of Christ, the full deity of Christ. What these Gnostics believed during this time was that the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus at his baptism, but left him before his crucifixion. And so John intends to write here to refute that false doctrine in front of the church, so that the church may have for themselves pure doctrine, to testify to Christ's divine identity. John here in this text is correlating, connecting the dots for us from his baptism to his death to say that both of these events, that inauguration of Christ's ministry at his baptism and almost pretty much leading up to the final stages of Jesus' ministry, the consummation thereof, he still was the Son of God. And most simply put, the reason why John is explaining this is because he has salvation, the salvation of the church on his mind. Jesus laid down his life on the cross to be an atoning sacrifice for sin. And his divine identity is important to this one event because Jesus' death on the cross, if he was not fully divine would not be able to save anyone. 
In other words, if Jesus was not fully the Son of God, if he did not have a a full divine identity, forgiveness of sin, remission of sin would not be possible. A.K.A., if Jesus was not fully God on the cross, payment for sin, the sin of man, could not be made. You know, as Christians, we often speak of the cross, and we should. We should marvel over it. We should gaze upon it. It is mysterious and beautiful. But the thing that makes it so mysterious and beautiful is not the cross alone. You know as well as I do from history that up until this point of time, there had been hundreds of thousands of people who had died on the cross. It is not the cross alone that makes the death of Christ special. But rather, what makes the cross special is who hung on it. The unique and exclusive divine identity of the Son of God hanging. He is the God-man. How else do the scriptures speak of Christ hanging on the cross? The Son of God. Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God was pleased to have the fullness of his deity dwell in Christ and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, things in heaven and things on earth by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. My brothers and sisters, it was none other than God himself who hung on the cross for the full atonement of your sin. Christ's divinity on the cross is what makes salvation salvific and also beautiful. Because in it, we are able to see the character of God towards us. His love displayed. And it makes it salvific because what God himself alone, on his own merit, did for us there. There's um, this, this document called the Heidelberg Catechism. It, uh, it's a really great devotional um, document meant to be practical for the faith. And in it, there are two questions concerning this that really clear things up. Question number six in the catechism asks this. Why must Jesus be a true and righteous man? Answer. He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man, a.k.a. sinless, because one who himself is a sinner, he cannot pay for the sin of others. Question number 17. Why must then he also be true God? Answer. So that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's eternal anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. In other words, one man said the Redeemer had to be truly human in order to suffer and sympathize, and he had to be truly divine in order to satisfy and secure. My brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to point out to you from this text this morning is that theology matters. It's not dead or irrelevant. 
We're considering a hypostatic union this morning. The full deity of Christ. And without this theology, this theological understanding of Christ, there is no salvation. But with it, there is knowledge of God. And knowledge of his character. And knowledge of his love. What is God's character displayed on the cross for us? Nothing but love and mercy directed towards us who are sinful so we could be one with affection to his person, to his son. That we did nothing for this salvation, but God did everything for ours. What does that practically mean? It practically means that salvation is free, it can never be earned, and since God achieved it, it can never be lost. You want to rest in that? I do. Do you want to know how to practically rest in that gospel? Forsake the performance treadmill of trying to be good enough for God or question yourself when you fail and sin as if he doesn't love you anymore. God loved us first. Not that we have loved God but that he has loved us. God has made a way for salvation, and that salvation is displayed and also accomplished and applied at the cross. And so I just want to say that if you're broken and you're needy, if you're sinful and rebellious, if you're imperfect or without hope. God loved you so much that he died for you. God himself, God incarnate, hung on a tree for the forgiveness of your sin. Not in part, but in whole. You, dear Christian, can rest in that. Who do we have in Jesus Christ? We have the God-man. Amen? Well, that was point number one, the three witnesses, the spirit, the water, and the blood. I'd like now to move to point number two and show you what is the one, the one word. If you look there in verse nine, what you'll see is how John continues on with his train of thought and moves into this idea of the testimony of men. If you look, he says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. What I want for us to recognize here is how John actually has his culture in mind. During this time, it was necessary, according to Jewish law, to have two or three witnesses for a case to be carried. And this is what John is seeking to do, to carry the case of Christ's divine sonship. And so in the first point, he presents to us three witnesses. But notice here how his apologetic or defense of faith, instead of appealing to his own mind or own reason to make sense of this case, what he does instead is depend and lean on God's testimony. He says, the testimony of God is greater. In what sense? Well, namely in God's eternal nature and divine wisdom, which is infinitely more perfect than any mortal human is able to proclaim or convey. 
John here, what he's doing is pointing to the trustworthiness of divine testimony because its origin is God himself. Indeed, this is what John has done since the beginning of our study of this book, is fight for truth by revealing to us the one who alone is truth. And so he is saying this, this case for Christ is above all valuable and supreme because of the one in whom it comes from. When he mentions the testimony of man here, he's speaking of his role as as an apostle. How he himself, being John, is just a man, but how he himself, being just a man, is also named by Christ himself an apostle. What was the role of the apostles during the New Testament times? Well, given to them by Christ was their authority to lead and to teach the church in what was orthodox Christian doctrine, the faith. And so John here, with humility, is saying, don't consider my own testimony, but consider the testimony of God through me. I am teaching directly from the mouth of God what I have seen and heard and experienced and touched and walked with in Christ. There was only 12 of us. Chapter 1, do you remember what he said as he made his appeal to the church for the authority of his teaching? I seen him. I walked with him. I was with him. I was among the 12 is what he says in the book. That which we have seen and heard We proclaim also to you so that you too might have fellowship with us. Apostolic New Testament gospel fellowship. I watched this really cool um, documentary the other day on Amazon Prime. It was uh, titled The God Who Speaks. If you've never watched it before, you should certainly um, watch it. And and about it, I kind of nerded out, uh, about it uh, was the history of the church and the credibility of the manuscripts. I know, I told you, I'm a theological nerd, but hopefully some of you are too. Um, That was a joke. Wow, tough crowd. Um, Anyways, the the document went on to explain why the, the Bible is credible. And what process, what the process was of the early councils in the church to discern what books to put in the canon and what not to include. And did you know that one of the most um, significant ways that they used to authenticate a book was to consider if it was written by an apostle or not? You, You had to be an apostle to write a letter and for that letter to be incorporated into the Bible. That's why, um, the, the Roman Catholic Church has 72 books and we have 66 because the extra books that they have have not been written by the apostles. In Luke, well, Luke in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, do you remember what he says as a true authenticating mark of the New Testament church? That they committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles. John here is saying, I am an apostle chosen by Christ himself, by God himself. Listen to me. What I'm saying to you is true. In this, I have no selfish gain. This is all doctrine about God for the glory of God. One, one commentator named um, David Jackman said this. The apostles were the human channels through which the truth was relayed. The spirit was their enabler. And how does the spirit testify today but through the channels he commissioned 
and used at the beginning through the apostolic testimony, the New Testament. This is the direct fulfillment of the promise Jesus recorded in John's gospel. When Christ said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. So the spirit bears witness through the scriptures, God's word of truth, by which human minds are instructed, human wills are changed, and Christ's followers are increasingly transformed into the likeness of their Lord. John is fighting for the credibility of his teaching to uphold the authoritative spoken word of God. The testimony of God is greater still. Do you remember what 2 Timothy chapter 3 said? All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, preach the word. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And my ministry to you is to present the Christ. Sola Scriptura. It's a Latin phrase that comes from the Protestant Reformation. And if you remember back to that time, the, the Roman Catholic Church had extremely become perverted. What had happened was that man and theological institution had started to usurp or um, take hold of authority over the Bible itself. And what happened to the church was nothing more than detrimental. And so this movement came from the Protestant Reformation called the Reformation. And those godly men, those reformers came out and said, no. There is only one document that is authoritative and alone has the ability to rule and lead the church. Scripture. Scripture. The Bible alone has the authority in the church. The greatest gift of heaven on this side of heaven that God has given to us is Scripture. The book has changed the world. The book is meant to change us. So hold me accountable when I preach. Hold that gospel that you hear on TV or on the radio accountable when it's preached. Turn to the word. The word of God has the alone authority to be the defining mark of what is God, what his salvation is, and how he saves I hope that you see this at our church, that my greatest fight here at this church is that we would be a biblical church, that we would honor the Lord in his word, that we'd preach in season and out of season, that no one has authority, not me, not the elders, not our denomination. No one has authority over the word of God, but God himself, because he wrote it. And so we say, praise God for the doctrine of sola scriptura, the Bible alone. And I ask you two applying questions for those of you who are here who do not know who God is, 
but aren't interested in him? Would you consider this, that this is the main method, the scriptures that God has used and written to teach you who he is? So what is my challenge to you? Um, to consider all the competing voices in your life, but to consider God's above those voices. So your parents' voice is helpful, but God's, greater, God's voice is greater still. And so your friends, your Christian friends and family members, are, it's helpful to listen, but God's voice is greater still. Pick up the book. Pick up the book. Don't go on your own experience with the church or another Christian. Don't let that define for you who God is, but pick up the book. The book will tell you who God is. And he longs for us to see Christ. My second challenge for us this morning is for Christians. Are you a Christian? You know that if you're a Christian. Um, how much do you read the book? It's not possible to have a healthy Christian faith if you don't read the book. And it's not a condemning question. It's a gracious gift and invitation to the book. God waits there. The spoken word of God is there for you. Are you down? Are you lost? Are you broken? Do you need forgiveness? Do you need healing? Do you need hope? Do you need a supernatural touch? Open the book and say, Lord, Speak, your servant is listening. He will speak. The Spirit works alongside of the Word of God to make the Word of God, these pages, these, these words written on a page, alive and well. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The gospel here in this point is, is that God has given us the scriptures in the New Testament written by the apostles to know infallibly and inerrantly, trustworthily and without error, who he is. God does not lie. Indeed, he cannot lie. This book says who he is. And what he thinks about you. Amen. I'd like to finish, lastly, our time together by showing you uh, what is eternal life. What's eternal life? We thought um, throughout this sermon about uh, the testimony of God. We still haven't yet defined it specifically. Um, but if you notice there in verse 11, John, this is exactly what he does. Look what he says. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. If we were to take the entire Bible, the entire message of the scriptures, and boil it down to one sentence, here it would be. This, John is saying, is the testimony of God. Eternal life in Jesus Christ. Jesus said to the people of his time, in the scriptures, you search for eternal life. But what you do not know is that these scriptures point to me. 
which means everything about the book from Genesis to Revelation is about a person, the God incarnate who came to save sinners from sin and give them true life. And I know that all of us have heard this, especially here in the South, they have heard this message of eternal life. But um, yes, it, it does talk about or it does refer to life unending, but that's not merely the gospel hope. Because if the gospel hope was only about life unending, you and I would have no hope until we meet that now. But true eternal life from the gospel is offered now. If you look during the text, John says that the spirit is truth and that truth lives in us. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. The world cannot accept God because it neither sees or knows God. But you know God, for he lives with you and will be with you. This is promise from God. He wrote this. This is for you. And let me remind you of what Jesus said concerning himself to evoke, arouse your faith. Dear Christian, listen to these promises. From the mouth of your Savior, Jesus said this, I am the bread of life. For whoever looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Now this is eternal life, that they know the one true God and Jesus Christ in whom you have sent. Who is this message for? This message is for twofold. It is for those of you who do not know what is true eternal life. You might know religion. You might know church attendance. You might even know prayer. But that does not mean you know eternal life because eternal life is a person. And by the Spirit, life is given alone. Changing life faith. Changing life grace. Have you been changed? Has God changed you? If you've never been changed, you might not know this eternal life. But God wants to change that for you. That's why he appeared in flesh and died, hung on a cross for the forgiveness of your sin, to take you from being spiritually dead, from not enjoying the Bible, from not enjoying worship, from not enjoying church, from not enjoying God's people, from not enjoying righteousness or holiness or the things of God. God takes his spirit and dwells a person and awakens the eyes of the soul to hear and rejoice and celebrate in what is the holiness of God. The person, the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, that is the mark of salvation. The soul that rejoices in the Son of God. And only you, you know if you have that. But I want to say if you do, praise the Lord. In John's first gospel, as he end, ended, he said, I write these things so that you may believe. But if you look at the next verse in the next section in verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe. This is for Christians. To know for certain that if you, be, that you, if you have been saved, you will be always saved because God alone saved you. What was it like for you when you first became a Christian? 
what happened to you? The gospel promises that will never go away. And God has given us his word to fan the flame, his spirit to enjoy intimacy. There is a sealing of the spirit at salvation. The spirit is the mark of salvation. You are God's. You are forever God's. You can't lose it. God's love is greater than your sin. You're forever his. You're treasured. You're prized. You're loved. You're a child. You have the spirit in whom inside of you cries out, Abba, Daddy. This happened to me when I was 19 years old in 2009. God crushed me. He crushed my life in the best way possible. He brought me to an end of myself. He brought me low. I had no one or nothing. But you know what he did in my having no one or nothing? With grace, he kicked in the front doors of my heart and said, you are mine. I'm giving you me. You know what happened there? He gave me his spirit and awoken my soul to a new hope and I became a new man. And this happens to Christians. Christian, if this has happened to you, praise God for the spirit who dwells in you that testifies to the Son of God. This morning, if this has not happened to you, I want to invite you to encountering this. To experiencing eternal life in Christ. The God of the Bible has spoken. There is eternal life in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you use services like this when slides don't work and when instruments are not uh, doing what they're supposed to and the mic is now working. You still work because there is a preaching of your word and your word does not return void. And so we worship you for your powerful word. That alone is enough. Use our response of singing as an act of worship to worship what you have done for us on a cross. Holy Spirit, pour yourself out on your people and awaken in their soul continued eternal life so that we would be faithful and grow in gospel maturity as we await the second coming of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.